Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. Of course, this year, we have another ANC elective conference. I've been to a couple of these over the last 10 years or so. And one thing is consistent. They are not very transparent. Everyone pretends to be shy about whether or not they have ambition. And really, unless you are deeply embedded as a journalist inside the structures of the African National Congress, whether you understand its methods or not, will determine how much you are able to scribe or to broadcast with clarity to the public what exactly is going on in the year or so leading up to the actual elective conference. Why is that? Because the ANC's internal organizational culture is one that, quite frankly, in my opinion, is archaic and stops comrades from putting up their hand and saying, I want to be SG. Here's my vision. Let me articulate it. Branches across the country can then decide whether or not I am that person and give whoever will vote eventually the mandate to go and vote for me at the National Elective Conference. So should the ANC modernize? What does that mean? I've asked ANC's member Crispin Peary, who is representing himself, not any political principle. He's not here as a government spokesperson. But as someone who still thinks that the ANC has got life left in it to come and reflect on one of the many challenges, in my opinion, as an analyst that the ANC must grapple with, which is a broader question of modernization. But this particular episode will focus specifically on the ANC's internal elections. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Crispin, good morning to you, and thanks so much for coming on Eusebius on Times Live. Thank you for having me, Eusebius. Look, we're both young. You are even younger than me, and yet I'm already growing old. And for as long as I can remember, since I was a university student, I'm soon going to have dreaded words like veteran, qualifying descriptions of my role in the media. The ANC has always been old-fashioned. I find it very frustrating. It's a disincentive for young people to get involved, because the kind of thing you and I enjoyed at university, like being in debating competitions, being able to run for a position, whether it is in the SRC or society on campus, you could go from res to res, and in hustings, you could say, hi, my name is Crispin, here's my vision for UWC, please vote for me. Would you agree with me that it is really problematic that the ANC doesn't have that kind of culture? Yeah, it doesn't have that kind of culture, um, and that's because historically, um, I think what it had been drawn upon was people who um, were eminent in society already, and they would then come in and say, this is the best way to move society forward. 
Uh, and so you would see very, really, really eminent people in society. Um, for instance, when the ANC mm. was formed, it was formed by Pixley Gassem, a lawyer, an eminent lawyer at the time. Uh, if you look at the Youth League, um, Anton Lamberde, a seminal intellectual at the time, Oliver Tambos, someone with a BSc degree, multiple, multi-talented individual, Nelson Mandela, and so on. So by and large, I think these people really stood out in society, and that's where this this uh, this notion got crafted that ANC is is the leader of society, and that's what we have, right? But then over the years, I think what has happened in the ANC is that the membership criteria, um, well, there hasn't actually been a membership criteria, so um, they um, they have then just had a situation where they you know anyone can join the ANC, and subsequently then we've had a culture where you know you can't necessarily express an, exp- an intention to lead um, and then ultimately you have a situation where anyone can lead um, and so that's one of the major problems. But, but you know what's interesting about what you are saying in that historical backdrop because we'll come back to the present and the modernity project that has never taken off a little bit later in the discussion and I know why you're doing this, because before you critique your fellow comrades, you want to do justice by the historical account of why the situation is as it is. And, you know, from a scholarly point of view, quite apart from a politician point of view, that's fine. Let's actually do that. But what's interesting, and this isn't a diss, but it's also part of that history that you are now trotting out, is that it's actually led to a kind of elitism. You have famous families in the ANC that then become entitled incumbents for certain leadership positions, for example, and also, actually, if we're honest about it, educational elites and class elitism as well within the ANC over that 100-year history. So, yeah, we've got these individuals we can talk about, the firsts who managed to go overseas or get a degree or come out or sort of great alumni of Fort Hare or Lovedale and what have you, and it's, it's wonderful to be able to look at their portraits and say, this was an intellectual. Um, and the subtext is, therefore, is meeting a minimum threshold to become the next ANC president. But actually, that's anti-democratic and exclusionary. The, well, I think, Eusebius, the responsibility of leading is not everyone's responsibility. There has to be a criteria to who amongst us is the best to take society forward. So to the extent that it is exclusionary, I think it's right that it must be exclusionary so that we have an organization that we know these are the best amongst us and these are the people who are fit, so, so to speak, to govern. Um, especially now when we're in a democratic society, uh, it's really not about, you can't have a situation where you have, for instance, uh, let's take uh, Ekurulene where I am from. Um, it's an economy or it's, it's a, a company worth 50 billion rand. You can't have a situation where someone who is required to lead that company or that entity is, is elected by a mere show of hands. We need a far more sophisticated model where we are able to understand what does this individual stand for? What is this individual's economic vision? And how does that even align to the vision of the ANC itself, uh, given the type of society that the ANC wants to, to, to inflict on society, right? So these are things that currently in the current model do not happen at all. We simply have a, a situation where Eusebius can get elected because it's popular and nothing else. Yeah, I just want to get something clear, though, because the tone of your response to my 
remark about the historical exclusionary nature of ANC appointment processes by and large suggest that there is disagreement between us, but I don't think there really is. You would agree with the following summary point of just where our little dialectic is right now, that there hasn't been maximum internal transparency and a gold standard of internal democracy in ANC elections over time. And the culture that had taken root, which is not maximally transparent, maximally internally democratic, has not necessarily been conducive to ensuring consistent leadership excellence, not least after 1994. I think that's right. I think that's spot on. Um, and, and I think that's partly what the problem is with the, politi- the political leadership that we have at, at some points in history, in, in the history of the 18th, the recent history actually, mm. um, of the 18th, mm. um, is that if we really look at this, we, we then ask ourselves, you know, is this truly the best amongst us to solve various problems in our society? Um, but strangely mm. enough, though, I mean, some would argue that if you look at another level slightly below, um, your, your director generals who most of the time are, are very, very high-ranking cadres who have the right level of qualifications and the technical skills. Um, that's where, to some extent, we do get it right. Um, but then again, also, I mean, there's much debate around that, right? Um, how how cadre deployment works and how it is effective, which I think is a necessary tool. Uh, nonetheless, if you want to deconstruct a, decolonial, a colonized state, uh, you want to have mm. someone here who's the supporter of colonialism at the height of your bureaucracy. So you need to have someone who has the political maturity um, required to effect the necessary changes mm. to decolonize the state, to reconfigure the state into a constitutional democracy that we want. So you, it wouldn't work if you simply deploy the racist, right? Just because they have the qualifications. And I think that's also a conversation that we yeah. don't have when we speak of cadre deployment. But yes, um, to, to your point again is to say that, that that is the nexus and that's where the problem is, I think, um, in, our, in, our, in the way in which we elect internal leadership of the ANC. So if we had to imagine a different set of processes, whether there's the will to get there and what the pathway is to getting there are separate questions which we can set aside for the moment and let's do idealism work and try and imagine what is ideal. Feasibility, pathway, that is a separate conversation. Implicit in what you've said over the last 10 minutes or so, I wonder whether the following is an accurate summary, which is really interesting. Up until, and I know we're fusing party and state, but but let's just go with that for a second. Up until the level of, say, DG, you fundamentally want to have threshold requirements of appointment that check the person's technocratic fitness to be able to be in a particular position. And maybe in parallel within the party at lower level, you want the same. Ideally, someone shouldn't be treasurer of a branch or a region if they can't count, for example. But when it comes to slightly more boldly political appointments like the NEC within the party, who ends up being your top six, the provincial leadership of the similar structures, national structure being emulated 
your top fives at regional or provincial levels, should those appointments have minimum threshold requirements for who can stand and what should they be? Or should it just be a popularity contest, which is the most basic intuition of democracy? Currently, actually, there is some level of requirement, right? So you can't be a member of the National Executive Committee, for instance, if you've not been a member of of the ANC for more than 10 years. Um, I think that is the standard. So there is some, some, some gatekeeping that is there. Um, but then I think that's, then that's it. Then from there, it's okay. So you've been a member for 10 years. How many people are supporting your nomination? And then how many people will elect you? Literally. And uh, then that becomes the exercise. It's not a case of, okay, so this is the type of country that we have in the moment. Um, we need these type of skills um, in society. How do we ensure that these are broadly represented in the ANC itself? Um, for instance, I always say actually to some comrades as well that there's no reason why uh, if the ANC was truly a leader society and that we say it is, there's no reason why we'd not be able to say, um, Eusebius, as a member of the ANC, you are highly skilled. You have been uh, the chairperson of the board in five listed companies. We see that there's a vacancy in an untransformed financial institution that continues to exclude Black people from um, financial services. We think you should apply for that. You know, that is the type of, of body that we should have, it's the type of capacity that we should be able to have. Um, because we believe that with our principles and our values, that is an institution that we can transform. Um, but currently, no, that's, that's not what we see. Firstly, the state is the major site of the struggle, right? Which is right in a way. That is the place that we need to uh, decolonize the most and transform the most. But there are other facets of society as well, which we have left to their own devices. No, I accept uh, that. I don't because... accept that, yeah. And for the sake of efficiency and complexity, and because you can handle it, I'm allowing us to move between state other institutions within business and society and the party. But of course, the impetus for this episode of Eusebius and Times Live is specifically the ANC qua political party. And I wonder how, and by the way, I agree with you, Crispin, how, I think I agree with you, the intuitions that you started off with in your first opening statement or answer to my first question around the fact that, yeah, exclusionary is not intrinsically indefensible. How you square that with what actually happens when we go to a national ANC elective conference, you guys as ANC members and us as the media following and reporting on what's going on. So, for example, um, I, maybe you were too young to be there. If you go back to Mangahung in 2012, there you have coming out of nowhere, almost left field, not quite, but as it were, um, the, now, the then deputy president, once he was elected, Wansoro Ramaphosa, who was elected as deputy president of the African National Congress, deputizing to Jacob Zuma without having uttered publicly anyway, one solitary word to make the case for why he should be elected as deputy president. Would you agree with me that that is undesirable? Yeah, I think the, the manner in which those, those type of things happen is undesirable. Um, we see it, for instance, and interestingly, though, a lot of people do say that uh, Comrade Cyril came out of nowhere at the time, Comrade President, as we now call him. But he was in the NEC for the longest time. He actually never left the NEC. Um, no, I'm talking about that. But I'm, I'm talking just, about something far more, far more simple. I just, I want to, I want to push you on this point because I think this is precisely the issue that us as younger South Africans across political 
landscape and non in a non-partisan manner grapple with because we have a different culture, I think, and I hope that is maybe where something where the elders can learn from us. I'm not talking about his work that, is, that he was doing in the NEC. You don't have to trot out his CV. I'm saying, and we can take other examples. We don't have to stick with, with the current president. But the fact that that he could go to Mangahung and become deputy president of the African National Congress without making a case for why he should be elected that that's deeply problematic. Yeah, and that's the culture right right across the organization, quite correctly. And that, that's mm. what I'm saying I think has become quite problematic uh, because we don't know uh, what a particular individual stands for. Um, and most importantly, mm. we, now that we are in governance and we are given the responsibility to govern society and govern this country, we need to be able to say, uh, we see that you were once a, a mayor somewhere. What was your track record? Then? Yes. How did you fare? Exactly. By what percentage that, did that economy grow in that particular region? Yeah. What is the state of crime? You know, we need to be able to pose these questions to individuals, even at a branch level, to say, we see that you are ready to be the chairperson of the branch. What is your plan for this ward? How will you implement ANC policy? Because we know that ANC policies are progressive, but what is your implementation plan? Or what is your previous track record of having Absolutely. delivered? And that's a culture that generally we don't have. And I think it's quite important, especially now, that we are given the responsibility from time to time through elections to govern. Um, we need to have this culture of asking these critical questions. So beyond looking at your CV, um, and saying, okay, how many years have you been there? How many years have you been there? We need to look mm. at your track record of delivery. And, and you know, China is an interesting example. This is actually what they do in China. For one to become a premier of a, of a province um, in China, they actually look at your track record. For you to actually enter into the central committee, not only do you have to have a minimum of academic um, qualifications, but you, also your track record has to speak for you. Second last question. What... In your observation, is the impact internally, as well as on the state, of, of, of having this kind of opaque, I'm shy, if you want me to be a domestic worker, I'll be a domestic worker, whatever the party wants I want, where secretly I want to be occupying the union buildings. What is the impact of this gaming and this pretense timidity about what your ambitions are? I think what then happens, Isibius, and you actually said this earlier, is that then you don't actually have a deeply democratic culture in your organization, first of all. What you then have is a popularity contest. Why do we want to vote for Chris? No, because mm. uh, he's popular or because uh, he sings well. Uh, when he sings, uh, the masses are, are riled up. Oh, he speaks the language of it. And then we have these weird references to why you should be um, a leader um, in the organization, mm. but we don't speak to the caliber of leadership that is required. And we do have this document called Through, yeah. Through the Eye of the Needle, which is this moralistic document that says a leader must, you know, be a man of the people, must be known in the community, which is all well and good. But it doesn't speak to the quality of what is required at the time. It speaks to, you know, the, the moral aspects of what is, what, what is required. And by the way, this is also then why we then have, in a way, 
weird questions around step aside and so on. Because I don't imagine how if one is accused of any heinous crime, they can stand up in the community and say, elect me to be your leader. And, and, and that community will endorse such a person. I think people would ask critical questions. Hang on, how are we going to elect you if you have a track record of abusing women? You know, that is inconsistent yeah, I agree with, with our you. values as well. I totally agree, yeah. So that's what we no, see. I think I that's think. right. And I think what it ends up doing, it, it subverts very basic minimum, what ought to be universal leadership, ethical standards in political parties the world over, servant leadership, accountability, responsiveness to community yes. needs. Uh, and so then, in fact, what it actually then does even deeper internally is that you can actually go, you see this with a bag of money and rent a crowd and pay them off to vote for you because they don't have to explain why they're voting for you. Their benefit from voting for you is, is monetary value, monetary, monetary gain. You can create a branch tomorrow out of nowhere with fake 100, 100 people, and, and there you are. You are an elected leader of a branch somewhere that doesn't exist because there is no track record of that branch distilling its reasons as to why, firstly, it exists in that community, but most importantly, why it needs that specific leadership. So what you then have is a distorted organization. And what's interesting about that, Crispin, and you, you will know this better than me from a legal point of view, is that you then second that person that you've just described, who has now been elected without explanation. The role of explanation in the state is actually fundamental to a rule-based society because one of the beautiful things that we theorized with the Constitution and adopting the Constitution is giving reasons for the actions that you take as a civil servant. And that requirement of rationality doesn't just exist because some jurisprudence scholar whispered into the ears of Vali Musa and others at Cordessa. It exists because we recognize that justifying what you do as an elected official is crucial to making sure that you handle the affairs of the state appropriately for the benefit of society. But if the process that feeds into the state is not imbued with a culture of reason giving, accounting with reasons, explaining oneself, then it's little wonder that someone can be seconded to the state and not do very well when they're suddenly demanded to offer reasons for their behavior in the state. Yeah, I think that's a, the way you frame it is a is a is a difficult way. Um, but I think I mean I think yes, if you're not if you are not versed in the culture of rationality and a culture of um, accounting, a culture of explaining, giving reasons, um, then then you then obviously breed that culture in many other ways, and you and you might inadvertently mm. sustain it in many other ways. So. Mm. I think that point is well made. Mm. That point is well made. Final question. I think from a diagnosis point of view and a reimagination point of view, we don't need another hour. I think you have succinctly analyzed how we got here, what's problematic with the culture in terms of not being conducive to accountability, 
being reason-oriented and explaining yourself, etc., etc., and that it's desirable to have greater internal democracy, transparency, and explaining why you are standing for the position of SG, president, deputy president, etc., etc., etc. I separated the question of how do we get there, because I think that perhaps requires us to commit. Let's commit to it right now. Maybe to have a part two, how we get there, because that requires 30 minutes on its own. So I'm going to ask a, a slightly easier question. Um, and you don't have to give too much detail for today. How optimistic are you as a younger person that that shift will happen? The detail we'll get to it another occasion, but just at the level of gut, because I think if, if, if we don't have a, I don't know, some degree of optimism that those kind of political cultural shifts can happen, then the answer to a question that was put to me by a gentleman who very generously stopped me at one of my favorite coffee shops and said to me, you see, because why don't you go into politics? And, I, and I, it's meant as a backhanded compliment. But the real answer is that I would be kicked out of most political parties precisely because these kinds of cultural points, let's call them broadly construed, run counter to the very thing we were taught at these beautiful new schools that opened up after 1990, but our political parties are lagging behind. I am very optimistic that this is something that will happen in the near future of the ANC, um, because um, one of the things that we must start seeing in the ANC is broadly discussing its own internal democratic processes. It, if we say we're a democratic mm. organization, then these are things that we must raise to the fore. Um, and, and if we say that we're in the process of renewal, as we say we are, these are the discussions that must be put on the table in the process of organizational renewal. Um, organizational renewal speaks to how the organization functions and how it organizes itself as well, how it must be modernized. Um, this may have worked uh, years, many donkeys years ago, uh, but now is the time that we really review some of our practices because one can see. In fact, uh, one is able to see right from when President Mandela hands over the organization to President Big. Um, these are some of the mm -hmm. things that he flags in his organizational um, political report, rather, in, Ma in Mahikeng, as, as we now call it. Um, and he flags some of these mm -hmm. practices as highly problematic. President Mbeki himself as well now says we're no longer able to actually even recognize whether someone who wears an ANC t-shirt is actually an ANC member. Um, and we, mm -hmm. we can't identify some of our practices with the ANC itself anymore. And so we now need mm. to develop this mechanism where we put up a gate. We simply put up a gate and we say, this is the ANC and everyone else is on the outside. And for you to enter into the ANC, this is how you must get through the gate. And if you can't, then sorry, the gate will just close. You can use it for free. I think there's an article headline there to be written as a younger person speaking to your organization. From the eye of the needle to opening the gate. Okay. <laughs> I'll take that up. <laughs> <laughs> I think there need to be a far greater set of threshold criteria to be met for leadership excellence Indeed. than what we have. And that's also why I'm grateful that you came on despite the ANC culture and not fearing that what you're going to be saying will be cut and paste as if you are speaking on behalf of a political principle. You're also allowed to have agency as an individual and just say so when you are speaking. So thanks so much for coming on, Crispin. I really appreciate it. The pleasure is all mine, you see this. Thank you. That was Crispin Peary, who, of course, is an ANC member and one of the young ANC 
Um, thought leaders who from time to time write and does so in his own capacity are often engaging and I can definitely tell you that these are his exclusive thoughts whether there are other people that he works with and for who do or do not share them I'll engage them in their own capacity um, as the weeks and months unfold in the lead up to the ANC's elective conference.